This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Eric Shaw Quinn, I'm very excited about today's episode. It's very special. It's a very special, right? Yes, it's part it of is. The, it's part of the... Uh, the, the the seri- the culmination of the series. This is what we're celebrating. Absolutely, our lives as ci- Citizen Detective Month continues, mm-hmm. and uh, we're bringing the ultimate Citizen Detective, the man who really sort of brought home the the Billy Newton investigation. Right. Uh, standard. It's not a standard disclaimer, but I say it all the time, and you're going to hear me say it more during the next two episodes, I'm sure. Uh, all of our episodes about the Billy Newton case, which we helped solve here at The Dinner Party Show presents Christopher and Eric, are available at thedinnerpartyshow.com. We have a special web page dedicated to the Billy story. I think it's called our hub page. It's right there on the home page. It's easy to find. And in those episodes, you will find our past interview with a man named Clark Williams. Who came to us through no fault of our own, mm-hmm. just because uh, became he became aware of our interest in the Billy Newton case through other people's interest right. in our interest and ultimately was the person who provided the clues to law enforcement that ended up solving the crime. Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll talk about some of the specifics of the Billy case, but what we, we really wanted to know, it's been a, almost exactly a year since uh, Clark was here. And the amazing thing is, is because of Clark's phenomenal result, with the Billy case, people investigating cold case crimes have become inter- interested in Clark. And yeah. are, he has started working with law enforcement here and around the country to help other cold case investigators solve their cold cases. And he's coming here to talk with us about it. And he's had so much work and he's got so many cases to talk about. He's going to be here uh, this week. He's also going to be back next week on that episode to talk about another case that he's working on. I believe the cases he's going to talk about today are in the Midwest. And then next week, he's got a case that's once again closer to home for us here in West Hollywood. Yeah. So anyway, I think we should get him in. You think we should get him? I'm so excited to talk to him. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll we'll get we'll get the background with it. But yeah. So uh, yeah. So this week, once again, we're we're back with uh, with Clark Clark Williams.
Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Clark Williams, we are so happy to have you back in our studio. Welcome back. Thank you, guys. It's so great to be here. For those of you who do not remember, Clark is the amazing, I'm going to say miracle worker, the person Mm -hmm. who joined us in our, well, our homage, your solution to the cold case murder of uh, William Newton. That's right. 30 years, a 30-year-old crime that... Yeah. Through. 32 years, but who's counting? Yeah. Right. yeah. It was 30 years when we started talking yeah. about it here on the show. In fact, we didn't realize we were talking about it on the anniversary. People oh, pointed wow. that out to us. And we said, you realize the 30th anniversary is coming up. Wow. Um, we have a, an enormous archive of episodes, including a past interview with you right, right after the news broke that you had solved the case, which you did. Um, that's on our website at thedinnerpartyshow.com. We have a hub page for all our Billy Newton episodes. But in the meantime, we've discovered you've been investigating us. <laughs> <laughs> By accident, I must add. I must add. Yeah. Tell us that we'll story. That. Listen, it's very <laughs> creepy. And, and I always apologize to everyone. You get a sense of what it's like when you're involved in a case that I'm working on. Is I very agnostically, if that's a word, am curious about people. And I discover things sure. about them that... Oftentimes, they may not even know themselves. Absolutely. And I think that is a fascinating component of the, the internet, and you are definitely the master at it. But yeah, we were sitting down to have a conversation, and you said to me, I found your immigration records. <laughs> and I was like, that's it. We got to start the interview right now. We got to find out what was in that file. Turn on that tape recorder. We're right. starting Just right you as a little baby. Uh, traveling from Germany. Did you see with the, your mother? Did you see the face, the the picture? No, I didn't. So you it haven't seen only... the naturalization no. picture. You should find that. Yeah. You should find the naturalization picture. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's choice. Oh, yeah, was, there's all sorts of interesting I things. I was apparently I could... in a mood that day. I don't know, four years old or two years, three years old or whatever. But they wanted me to smile for the camera, and I was not oh. interested. And so it was like, okay. Oh, I found lots of fun little, cute little things about about you, Eric. I found your 
uh, that you had been at a candlelight ceremony at a church in Louisiana, and <laughs> I found your community theater work, and there's all sorts of little things that I love. I feel like I get to know you in a oh, whole different that's way. That's really interesting. That's I love that. Yeah. Oh, my God. That is really, you just never know what's out there. It's you there. don't. You it's really all don't. all out and about, and you're amazing accomplishment with Billy has resulted in like a new career for Brand you. new, yes. It has been quite a year um, after the Billy Newton case. And uh, you guys are certainly a big part of that as word spread about sort of the contributions I made on the case. And we were spreading it the best we could. Oh, yeah, I started getting all sorts of phone the calls. LA Times and joined the chorus. It was quite a lot of people talking about your amazing uh, solution to the Billy. So so then the the... the the police actually came to you, Yes, right? the LAPD uh, came to me and and said, we'd like you to be a volunteer uh, with our department. And uh, got me, you know, fingerprinted and everything I needed to do in order to sort of have access. Did they go find your candlelight pictures? <laughs> I, from... I hope so. I hope so. Because it's just, as I find things about you, that you can also find that stuff about me. I'm so, sure. There's fair. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I had an interview once with... Um, Somebody from the New York Times, and she started with my age, and I was like, is that really? And, you know, no, like, I, I don't care, is. but is that really? She said, oh, it's just a matter of public record on yeah. the Internet. I'm just <laughs> confirming. I was like, well, okay, then the hell with it. Whatever. But I started, yes, yeah, so the uh, law enforcement agency, the LAPD, who I worked with and that you guys worked with uh, on the Newton case, had reached out to me. But other law enforcement agencies did as well, and other families and friends of homicide victims from around the country oh. sort of began. And contacting me. That's amazing. And saying, could you help? You seem to have this skill and we need another set of eyes on a case. Or, uh, you know, I sort of, it was overwhelming. I had to sort of pick and choose and sort of find the right fit. Sure. Um, but that's when I realized, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I ought to just lean into this mm -hmm. and uh, see where it goes. You have a gift. You have a gift. But I also want to add, I think, the gift that you showed on the Billy Newton case is there was not a lot there on the Internet. We mm -hmm. were joking around about what you can find on the Internet. Right. But we did a ton of searching on the Internet, and the footprint for that case digitally vanishes because it happened in 1990. Right. And, and most of Billy's work in adult cinema happened before that. Correct. So um, there, there was not a lot that you, that you could find. <laughs> well, I I would point out that my immigration happened considerably <laughs> before that as well. So That's true. No, I don't have a too fine a point on it, but it was before 19... That's uh, yeah. a really good no. point, yeah. But um, I think that where you went was uh, published books. Like right. you really, you literally went to the library, old yes. school style, because the old information school. that you found that linked uh, Daryl and Madden to a similar series of crimes was actually in a... An out of print book, wasn't Correct. it? It was no yeah. longer, so it wasn't like you could buy it on Amazon. No, I had to, I had to find it and yeah. track it down and order it and uh, that's, and read it, which is the read hard it. part. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you couldn't just search it. You I had, had my little, I had my had little yellow it. highlighter, like I was back in graduate school Old again. School. You know, going going through it, and I think that's important because a lot of times people think, oh, you're an internet sleuth, and I really don't like that term because uh, the internet is a tool I use, but it's not really the way that I. I work on on investigating these cases. And mm. so it's a lot of getting out and traveling, and I spend a lot of time in libraries and right. dusty 
buildings with old records that are falling apart. There's a lot like of Like in the work. movies. Yeah, it is. Because all the cases that I work are 30, 40, or 50 years old. And so they're not recent cases. Right. And so a lot of those records you have to go and track down. They're Analog. not available on the right. internet. Right. Not digital. So yeah, this week you're going to talk to us about the unsolved murders of two women in yes. the Midwest, which is Mary Alice Hedglin Ellicott. I hope I pronounced that uh, correctly. It's Hedglin. Hedglin. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Talfrida Covington. That's right. And then next week, we're going to have you back to talk about another case that you're working on as well. But this week is about Mary Alice and Telfrida. So how did you go from Billy to them? Did you go directly from Billy to them or were there Uh, other cases Yes, pretty much so. Uh, Essentially what happened was after um, the Newton case and all the publicity that came about from your show and from the L.A. Times, um, the Michigan State Cold Case Unit uh, reached out to me. Wow. Uh, knew that my daughter was a student at Michigan State University, and oh. so I began corresponding with them. And um, they said, "Hey, uh, would you like to come and speak at one of our uh, one, one of my classes, the the head of the cold case unit at Michigan State?" And I said, "Sure." I was visiting my daughter and put together a presentation about my work on the Newton case. Cool. And uh, she said, "Hey, there's this case that my that we have a cold case unit. There's a case that my class is working on." Hmm. and uh, gave me the name, and that's all that it took. It was very similar to the Newton case. There's something that happens with me when I get just a name and I just can't seem to stop myself from Mm -hmm. falling into it. And so right away I began uh, investigating Mary Alice Hedgelin, uh, Ellicott. And uh, this was a 42-year-old cold case. Mm. They had recently... uh, just kind of reopened the active investigation of the case, largely because of the efforts of the cold case unit at Michigan State University. And oh, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, so that's kind of how I got started on it, and now it has led to. How did they present the case to you? Did they say this is this has haunted the community for years, or this is where we're focused in this class? So we've already done some legwork, and we want to bring you in on it. What? It, what? How did they hook you into the case? Well, they hooked me by first giving me a tour of their cold case files. Mm. Um, I did not have access to the files. I don't have access to them, but it was like a little closet, and it was like oh. I could feel my nerves. I was so excited. I'm like, just leave me here. This is all I want. Right. Um, And so they just originally gave me the name. And right away, I just started leaning into the same kind of feelings I'd had with the Newton case. I wanted to know about Mary. Right. Starting with the victim. You know, so many times in, in cold case investigations, they're always looking for the perpetrator. I don't ever move there. I start with the victim and learning everything I could about her. I spent weeks, if not months... Uh, trying to dig up and build a complete victimology of Mary Alice Hedgelin Ellicott. So, so on October 11th, 1981, she's 29 years old, and she's hanging out in a bar called the Polar Bear. Correct. Uh, she seemingly disappears out of thin air, very similar to the Billy Newton case, That's where right. he was last seen at Rage Nightclub in West Hollywood and then went missing. Then she is found a short while. She's reported missing by her mother, and she's mm-hmm. found a short while later. So well, several days. Several days later. Yeah, like yeah, a few weeks. I like two weeks. I think. Or I'm something. so jaded yeah. in the true crime world. A few days later is a short while later, yeah. but for a family, <laughs> it's an it's an agony. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But uh, so okay. Fr- from there, where did you go as an investigator? So I started uh, birth to death. I mm. start with digging. I started her family genealogy. I wanted to know where her grandparents came from, where her parents came from, how they met. Where how they got married. I wanted to know. I wanted to um, to know Mary, to know her, and yeah. to sort of put myself in her shoes. 
as to why was she at the polar bear on October 11th, 1981? What was happening in her life? And I needed to know how she got there. Um, and I love that journey because uh, Mary, similar to Billy, Mary's like one of my kids now. Like I know her. I know how she feels. I know where she's been. And that takes a lot of time mm, um, to yes. sort of dig, dig through that. But I approach it because of my professional skills as a, as a social worker. And I, so I build up sort of a psychosocial assessment, a profile of, of Mary's life. Um, and, you know, that's uh, – I'm able to identify sort of themes and, and trends with her. I think that her. is really like a, almost a revolutionary yes, notion. absolutely. <clears throat> because absolutely. we hear about profiling and we hear about that, but it's always in terms of the right. person doing the crime the as opposed to the person – who is the yes. victim of the crime. And that is such a brilliant... It's revolutionary. I, I really do think that this is going to be the Clark Williams <laughs> technique or something yeah. that they'll be teaching at Quantico in, I, in 20 I, years I from totally now. I totally agree. Just, I was sitting here, you tossed it off like it was so casual, but we talk about so many of these stories and the cops immediately say, what are the criminal archetypes that could have right. dispatched this person Describe to me who we're looking for. obvious reasons. And they don't go, and it dehumanizes the victim. Right. Oh, the victim was a sex worker, so all they wanted was to kill a sex worker. You know, mm -hmm. it, it completely eliminates any personal connections. You ultimately found there was some degree of a personal connection between Billy Newton and Daryl and Madden. They right. worked for the same. All that sort of stuff is lost in that approach. But you are willing to go find all of it. Yeah, and I think it's sad that the victim gets to be known for how they died rather than for how they lived. Yes. And I want to I wanna fill out that story, and not just of the victim, but the victim's family, the survivors. Absolutely, because they're victims well. in all of this, Very too. much so. And out of that, particularly in a case where that's so cold, right, like the Newton case, yes. right? Yeah. Um, the Ellicott case is 40-plus years old. Right. And— there's a lot of at the same time I'm sort of building out that victimology. I'm also trying to figure well, figure out why is the case cold. It's almost mm. like a, a dual investigation. Mm -hmm. What happened with the law enforcement investigation through no fault of their own? Right. right? Um, I, I I'm very clear that I work with law enforcement, and so I I try to figure out well how did where where, where did the distraction come from in this case? Mm -hmm. And. You can get answers to that. But I think with the, for me, with the Hedgeland Ellicott case, and I'm very clear I use Hedgeland intentionally because it, for me, it clarifies it. She was Mary Alice Hedgeland for most of her life. This is what happens with a lot of women, right? When they marry and they take on their, their mm -hmm. spouse's surname, right? you know, it, it, almost as if they divorce themselves from the life they had before. I intentionally do not do that Good. because there's a lot of clues there. Sure. And um, what I learned very quickly with Mary Alice Hedgeland was what happened to Ellicott. When I found her obituary, his name was nowhere in the obituary. Huh. Mm. Now, I learned that they had been divorced. But no one in law enforcement knew anything about her ex-husband. Oh, my God. You're That's kidding. Unbelievable. His name I'm... is not even in the police file. Oh, my God. And so I immediately began asking questions. Now, again, we're approaching this from 2024, right? Right. Mm -hmm. But in 1981, right, you have to sort of go back to how were crimes being – how were homicides oh, being yeah. investigated at oh, that yeah. time? Mm -hmm. And this is the benefit of my age, right? Because right. I, I know 1981. Yeah. Um, this bar that the polar bear was in rural Michigan. I know – as you guys know, I'm from rural Wisconsin. I know yeah. a lot about rural taverns and the, the life of a rural tavern. Sure. Um, so I could put myself at the polar bear. I understood the kind of people that would have been there. 
Um, but I also, I also thought it was important to, to figure out with, in Mary's case, why she was there and where was the ex-husband in the case? Sure. Why was he somehow nowhere in the police file? Mm-hmm. Was it by design? Was it accidental? What happened? And I actually had a chance to ask the investigators, the original investigators in the case. Wow. I'm like, why is this guy's name not in there? And they didn't have an answer for me. Sort of the best answer they had was, listen, we were from a small rural community in Michigan. They were new to law enforcement. They didn't really know. Yeah. Right. They were so focused on the crime scene and the people immediately around Mary at the time of her disappearance. Right. That there really was no effort to do that. There wasn't the knowledge of partner violence, for example. Right. That we now accept and know that it's a good idea to usually look at the partner. Right. When yeah. someone goes missing. That was not the case in 1981. God, that's kind of unbelievable to me. It's become so reflexive yes. anymore that I can't it's believe the, there was a time when the guy. The, the, the joke on the closer. The character on the closer. It's because it's always, 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 always the, the husband. husband. Yeah. The, but, and know. I'm very clear. I don't. I don't have evidence that he did do it no, as well. Right. I'm very but still, honest about that. But I wanted to know about him because I'm also learning about Mary at the same time. When did she marry her husband? How did what was their marriage like? How did they get divorced? It was all part of filling out her victimology. Was he even living in the area? Like, did you find out anything about him? I did. I first of all had to find his actual name. No one even knew his name. Wow. And that took me a while. Um, Unbelievable. And so I found out his name, and his name is Brian Ellicott. Um, and so I began looking, and I did the same thing with Brian Ellicott as I've done with all of my victims. I created created an offender profile, even though he's not an offender. Sure. Um, but I wanted to know everything about him, so I've done his entire family genealogy. I know things about the Ellicott family that, honestly, I don't think they know. Maybe not. Um, including immigration records. <laughs> I, I must say, I'm not expecting you know things about me I don't know. I learned that he was a dual citizen between oh. Canada and the United States, oh. which is much more common in Michigan. Sure. And uh, it creates a it's challenge. Just a drive. Right. Yeah. With, yeah. As an investigator, it creates a challenge because then you're dealing with a whole other country. And of Canada course. has completely different laws and guidelines about public information. Uh-huh. So it presents a challenge. Interesting. Okay. Um, but uh, what I learned was, and this through, you know, went through actually going to Detroit. I flew to, back to Michigan um, during the summer, spent hours in the Detroit Public Library, which is a beautiful building, I might add, uh, mm. in the basement. I talking to the reference librarian. Uh-huh. And I could not do my work without reference librarians. Oh, God. I love bless them. them. God bless so librarians. Much. Yeah. They always point me in the right direction. Um, going through old city, dusty city directories. And I learned everything about about Brian's life. But what really excited me in a way was when I found, sadly, his obituary. Mm. Because, again, you know, this is a 1981 case. Similar to the Newton case. Almost everyone involved has passed away. But uh, he died in 2016. So I missed getting a chance to talk with him. But when I found uh, where he was buried and I found his tombstone, at the very bottom of the tombstone is a quote. It says, his war is over. Mm. I'm like, what war? What what does this mean? It certainly left me, my intuition was this was a a tortured soul. Yeah. Someone who really struggled. And as I built out his his profile, I learned that he had been drafted in 1967. Oh, dear. Yeah. Immediately was like a lot of young men in the United States. uh, Immediately found himself in Vietnam. Yes. Served two tours of duty there. 
and was discharged uh, and was never the same. Yeah. Like a lot of young men who, mm-hmm. who went into the, into the service at that time. And right. there were also no services. Um, I mean, the VA was really not providing services at that time during the 1970s. Certainly so, not of that, not for PTSD right. or those kinds of issues. Yeah. So I got, I found his criminal, I found his military record. Uh, I was had to order that and that took a while, took several weeks. And right. I got his military record, which gave me so much information, the kinds of, the job he had in the service, when he got discharged. And I found out, because then I matched that with his criminal record, which I could obtain, that two weeks after he was discharged, he got picked up on the streets of Detroit for a drug charge, which, again, not unusual for people who were discharged from service after Vietnam. Right. Um, And that kind of started his whole lifetime of sort of periods of incarceration, uh, mostly DUIs, drug charges, and DUIs in Michigan in the 1970s and 80s was almost like a rite of passage. Mm. I mean, it was <laughs> right. very Take common, exactly. Um, so, again, that doesn't make you a killer, right, if you pick no. up a DUI. But How did it, he meet up with Mary? How did the two of them come together so in those kinds of circumstances? When I was in the, the bowels of the Detroit Public Library going through city directories, I learned they lived three blocks from each other. Oh, in Detroit. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so that's likely how they oh, met yeah. in their 20s. Sure. Um, and uh, they met. They were married. I had heard from um, someone in the cold case unit that said that they had heard that they had had, that there was some violence in the relationship. Oh, dear. Mm. Um, but, you know, again, 1970s, you know, if you were uh, experiencing partner violence, you didn't call the police. It was so, it was an epidemic at that time. Mm. I mean, this is before the Oprah Winfrey show, right? Mm-hmm. Was drawing attention, calling right. attention to this stuff. It was very common, right. particularly in um, these kinds of families in Michigan, sort of uh, undereducated and dealing with a lot of, of problems uh, in the 1970s. I mean, the manufacturing base in right. Michigan was yeah. completely disappearing. So people were really working odd jobs. They were doing anything they could to sort of keep their family afloat. Right. Challenging times. Yes, very much so. And what I also learned was that Mary's parents had divorced um, in the 1960s, and they were very, very Catholic. And so understanding that uh, and what that would have been like for that family um, to have— Mary had actually been going to Catholic school, and she abruptly transferred to the public school— and because of the divorce, that's what I believe. Yeah, um, can't but say, but can't say like for it. sure. But Tem- then, time wise, but also the fact that the parents divorced and then the mother remarried in 1978. Um, so you know, again, because I had completed the complete family history, I really was trying to match the family history of Mary Alice Hedgeland with the family history of Brian Ellicott to see what the attraction was. But for me, what was really shocking was when. And this took weeks to get the Wayne County <laughs> Records Department to get me this record. I got his divorce record. Mm. And what I learned is that they were divorced three months before Mary Alice Hedgeland went missing. Wow. Wow. And what I know as someone, as a social worker who's worked in areas of domestic violence for years, is the most dangerous time for a survivor of partner violence is the 18 months after they leave. Right. Not actually during the marriage itself, mm-hmm. but it's when they leave. And why the divorce was actually, why, why the judge actually issued the divorce certificate was only because Mary had failed to respond to any of the subpoenas, any of the, the, the court records. She clearly was, did not want to be known, did not, did not want to be mm. located. 
Because I never understood why she had been living in Detroit all of her life. Right. And where she disappeared at the polar bear was in Celine, which is an hour and a half outside of Detroit. This right. Is, I yeah. mean, I went to the crime scene. It's this little rural bar in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Why was she there? Hiding. You know, and um, it just sort of fills out that story yeah. of, of her life. And what I, understanding these families, understanding Mary's life, believe that there was likely family violence mm. in Mary's family. Uh, which leads to substance use and mm-hmm. alcohol. Three weeks before Mary disappeared, she was picked up for a DUI. Mm. Oh. So her life was unraveling at the time. Um, and uh, she had uh, been working as a bartender at the Polar Bear, but then had quit a week before her disappearance. I read that, yes. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we look at that today, right? I mean, our unemployment rate today is, what, 4% or something. I quit my job at Starbucks. I can go across the street and get a job at McDonald's. Right. Not in Michigan in mm-hmm. 1981. Not in No, the, the unemployment rate was 15%. Oh, my, my God. God. So yeah. that was a big deal. And nothing was going on in Celine anyway. No, no. So she would have been just on the on the precipice of, of, oh. of chaos right. in her life at the time. and. So that's all. Those are all the factors I, I sort of take in, right? Mm-hmm. Did she have another gig lined up, or she we didn't. don't know? She just quit. Do we know why she quit? We don't know. And and what's interesting is she quit, but yet that's where she was socializing a yeah. week later, yeah. which again is not atypical. You know, no. growing up in rural Wisconsin, the local tavern. Back where I grew up, it was you know Club Thirty Seven on Highway Thirty Seven. <laughs> it's where you went every day after work. Right, yeah. it's where you saw your friends, your neighbors. Yeah. I mean, it was a big part of your social life, and right. so I think that was for Mary. That was her connection to her community. It's where she had worked. It's where all of her friends were. Um, so that doesn't surprise me uh-huh. um, at all. And I think law enforcement very wisely looked at everyone that was at the polar bear that night, and they have done a thorough investigation from everything I've been able to to pick up. We spent a lot of time in the Billy Newton case talking about what we did know, which were the wounds on his remains. And mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to get too gruesome here, but what did the injuries she sustained, the fatal injuries, suggest about the crime or the nature of the crime? Quick crime of passion, methodical, sadistic? Well, I think, you know, I obviously don't want to disclose anything sure. that w- right. would be in the police file necessarily. Of course. Um, but what directed you sort of in a general What directed sense? me was that uh, similar to the Newton case— this indicated someone that, sort of different than the Newton case, there was a, a large number of wounds on her body, mm-hmm. which indicated that it was someone she knew. She wasn't running away from someone. It wasn't like, you know, the issue of a crime of passion, uh, typically uh, when the perpetrator commits a crime of passion, right, it's quick and then they're out. Yeah. Right? She, her body was found several miles away from where, from where she had disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, no one ever reported her her body at all, um, but there were a, lo- a significant number of wounds, and there was a decent effort to collect whatever forensic evidence they could with the tools they had at the time, right? As well, which never really led to any specific any person of interest. Yeah. But they also Sorry, said in the article that they were able to begin to run new tests now that technology had advice. Has that helped to move the case forward at all? In well, the, um, the DNA, what, is there something you can or can't tell? <laughs> well, I know when, when I, when I have spoken with, and you know, I have to say the, the team of investigators that are, are working on this case have welcomed me. And I can't tell mm-hmm. you how much that means to me. They, they see sure. me as an asset. 
And so I, you know, do share everything I've shared with you. Of course, I share with them. Of course. Sure, right? of course. Um, but we've talked about, well, what could take this investigation to the next level? And there's, you know, a few things. Some was my continuing work on the Ellicott case, on, the, on, on Brian Ellicott. There's still a lot of questions I'm still seeking answers for. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one thing is uh, he disappears from me, Right. Like, I have Brian Ellicott. I know everywhere he was until 1981, and then all of a sudden I can't find him. And then he shows up again in 1989, Mm. right? Because I get addresses. I know where everyone is. And, you know, you get to that point sometimes in cold cases, and the instinct sometimes is to just say, well, you know, maybe I don't need to. I'm just not going to find that. For me, something happens. Yeah, that's I go, a real red flag. It's like a, a real right red after the flag. crime, yeah. he goes missing for eight years. That's I don't really know where weird. he is, but yeah. but that's when I found out that he was a dual citizen, uh-huh. and so I was able to track down a friend of his, who said, yes, that her understanding when I because I when I had gone to Michigan, I had driven to where she lives along Lake Erie, um, and talked with her, and she said her understanding was that Brian had gone to Canada. Mm-hmm. And that, that when he was in Canada, he apparently married again oh. and had two children, two sons. I can find no evidence of those boys. Now, I know they exist huh. because when I was in Michigan, I went to the local, the small county where Brian Ellicott died and I was able to get his probate records. And they're mentioned in his probate records. Okay. So I know they exist. They were born. They okay. were born. And I think they're on in Ontario... But that's as far as I've gotten. Oh. So, you know, as my husband says, please tell me you're not going to fly to Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> I, gotta, but, I don't mean to take us too far afield of the cases because we, we want to talk about yeah. those. But who's funding you? Or is this out of your own pocket? This is just me. I'm just a wow. volunteer. And that's I great. Just, I just sort of feel compelled to sort of, you know, for the same reasons I was cared so much about the Newton right. case was sure. to, to be of service and to sure. use my skills in whatever way possible for, for justice. Right. You know, yes. I, I mean, I know you guys did so much to, to bring justice for Billy Newton. Absolutely. I feel that same way about Mary Hedgeland Ellicott. I, I yeah. totally understand that. That it was is. what drove us was we just couldn't bear that that no. was going to, we were just going to leave it like that. I mean, we wanted to get it as far. We never imagined right. that you would take us over the finish line and the way that you did with, uh, with John Lamberti and yeah. the, the LAPD, but right. but that was definitely justice for Billy was definitely we what kept us going. I had a similar moment with that case that you had with the Ellicott case of discovering that somebody had died. Mm-hmm. And I, I I there was some press coverage of the fact that Billy's father had picked up the torch for right. his case. And then you never heard anything except for a parting sort of words in some interview that he felt that the LAPD had given up again mm-hmm. and that he was very discouraged. And then on newspapers.com I discovered his obituary, and that's when I said to Eric, "The that he's running out of advocates because yeah. they're aging. It's a thirty-year-old case, yeah. and his older family members are having health issues right. and passing away. And that's when we thought the best that we could do was was get a new generation of people as obsessed with the case as we had been. And um, it, it didn't matter what generation they were in. Yeah. We got you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell you, you know, and and under, being having that connection to his father, yeah. you know, as a father myself, I felt that. Yeah. And in fact, when I was in Eau Claire over the summer, I went to his grave marker. Oh, wow. I had a nice long conversation with Billy's dad because oh, wow. I felt so connected to yeah. his father sure. mm-hmm. in the same way you did, sure. Christopher. Yeah. Well, you felt connected to Billy from the community Very and from his so. own background yeah. anyway. Yeah. The, how close you guys had come yeah. together. 
we were the, born a week apart. I yeah, mean, we were from the same same generation, same, same, same age. Each other in Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, I want to get to the other case yes. that you're working, but I I, I want to sort of close this out, even though it Where sounds are like we with yeah, Mary? it's not closed. But have you left it's the police not. with the sense that you found the number one suspect and he's no, dead? No, I haven't. Okay. And I think what I am very clear about is I actually as much as I would love to get the praise for the Newton case, I don't actually solve cold cases. The police do, mm. right? What I really feel like I did, similar to the Newton case, is I helped build new leads, right? right. It's up to the to law enforcement, the, the real investigators in these cases, to actually close them out. That's mm-hmm. not really up to me. So I feel good about, I offered some new leads in the case. I'm part of their team. You were the reason they interviewed Danny Land, but they did do the interview. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so I feel like even my involvement sort of provides some energy to the cold case working the Ellicott case. And when I was there in October, we actually met on the anniversary of of Mary's disappearance at the Polar Bear, Mm. which I, again, felt so close to Mary at that time with the original investigator. And it's still there. Yeah, it's still there. It's got a different name. I was going to say, is it still called the Polar Bear? But no, okay. Um, But... uh, and so meeting there and talking about, well, how, what can we do with these next steps? And I sort of said, well, I'm going to continue to investigate Brian Ellicott. Again, not because I think Brian Ellicott did it. Mm-hmm. I'm very clear about that. Um, in a very similar way, you know, to Daryl Madden. I wasn't convinced Daryl Madden had really done it right. until, you know, Officer Lamberti interviewed him. Right. You know, he gets, he, he's the one that solved it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I just look for that missing information to try to provide resources that law enforcement might not have, you know, have in investigating some of the people well, around the case. They didn't even know the, the husband's name. What was the husband? You, Brian. They Brian didn't even Ellicott. know Brian's name. No, they didn't even know So, it. yes, that is definitely information they did not have, yeah. let alone the insight into who right. he was and how he came to be I there. mean, most cold cases are solved through forensic evidence, through new tools, new DNA, things that they didn't have, obviously, in 1981. Right. It, it, the, the material you sent us, that was one of the things that stood out, that right. they were going to be able to, there was DNA evidence with her that they weren't able to really do right. much with at the time, but that maybe new technology right. would allow them to process some of that. And I that. know when I met with them, we did talk for a period about um, exhumation. Um, to see if it's possible that there could still be some forensic evidence, even though it's been 42 years. Um, of course, that's a whole other process that oh they handle, goodness. and a judge has imagine. to weigh in. And, yes. and there's only one living family member uh, left mm. in, in Mary's family. Oh. Um, and I have, of course, offered my services to help do the genealogy in right. any anything, any profiles that may come out of that if it happens. Right. I have mm-hmm. no information as to whether or not they've done it yet or not. But it is some progress, and I... I'm, I'm happy about the contributions I've made in this case, um, as well as the cold case unit. I really worked a lot with them, yeah, and, I, and I enjoy it. It's the same reason why I like working with uh, Lamberti. Um, yeah. He gets me, yeah. and I kind of get him. And so well, it's, it's Lamberti good... said to us when we talked to him about you on this podcast, he said, look, I get, I get leads all the time. I got mm-hmm. people claiming to have a lead. And when Clark called and, 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 and wanted to sit down, I, I just thought, here we go. It's going to be space aliens or whatever. And he said, then he listened to you roll out your methodical evidence, mm-hmm. and he got chills. 
I mean, because he was on a plane to go interview Daryl yeah. and Madden in Oklahoma not three days later. Right. After he called, texted us, said, I've got something huge and I'm going to Oklahoma. Don't tell anyone and I can't tell you what it is. And we were like, yeah, you know. <laughs> At this point, we didn't even. I think he actually did mention you. Yeah. No, he didn't mention you until he called us to I say he had so. the confession. He said, mm. you got to meet this guy, Clark Williams. He's a savant. Um, yes. You know, all that sort of stuff. You. That's literally what we called you a savant. Amazing. I just think you're. The, the, the technique, your approach is so unique and I think potentially revolutionary in the investigative field. We have heard this. We heard this from some of the law enforcement people we talked to about Billy Newton's case. Mm-hmm. And I think we hear it on the on the TV specials that we talk about for the most part, which is investigators saying, look, we just sometimes don't have the time. Mm-hmm. What the investigation requires is a level of time that our department's not giving us, that the supervisors are not giving us. We have a full caseload. We're overworked. We're underfunded. If some private citizen can come along who says, I have eight hours a day just to investigate genealogy records, they're like, please, please help right. us. Because what they say, you know, the the first, the cop who discovered Billy's remains, who ultimately mm-hmm. had nothing to do with the case, right. he was, I think, a vice cop at the time mm-hmm. who was out um, serving warrants and was flagged down by the transient who had found Billy's remains in the dumpster. He said, we would investigate anything where people would talk to us. But once they stopped talking to us, we really don't have a lot of places to go mm-hmm. as police officers. So it can look like bias. It can look like we don't care because it's a sex worker. Right. But if we're interviewing all of their friends and colleagues and nobody wants to open up because they feel they're living a criminal lifestyle mm-hmm. and might be at risk, the investigation shuts down within several days. So when someone like you comes along with this time and this energy and this effort, it cracks cases. But it's invaluable. also your unique perspective. I'm yeah. just bringing, coming, I guess it's the social work it background. Is. very or much so. Very much brought you into this from and it's, a um, it's intuition. I've never heard before. I mean, I definitely use my intuition. I am not a psychic. I wish I, I had Wouldn't that, that skill. Wouldn't that be convenient? That'd be fantastic. Yes. But, okay. but I, I do lean into the missing pieces of information and I, similar to the Newton case, there are you know hundreds, if not thousands, of small little pieces of information in the Ellicott case. I never throw it away. I try to make the connections, and I try to build a story. So in the time that we have left, let's talk about the next case yes. in Michigan that you got involved in, which is Frida Covington. Now, was this the same cold case unit that got you into yes, this one? Yes, so I got this referral from the Michigan State Cold Case Unit from the director there. And this was an important case for me because— you know, I've worked, you know, half a dozen cases now and since I was here last. And what I've realized that I've, I noted is that all of my cases seem to have a similar profile to them. They were all white, mm-hmm. um, all mostly women. Um, but what I also know about, about murders and homicides in this country is the majority of homicides are committed against people of color. Mm. And I was wondering, well, why am I not working? Why am I not getting a case like this? Right. And when you like, just when you turn on Netflix, right, and you see all the docudramas about cold cases, they're all kind of fit a similar profile, mm-hmm. right? Of white the victim, mothers, white missing mothers, which yeah. is not the majority of people no. found murdered in the United States. No. And so I began to think about my own bias, Chris. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I'm like, why am I not doing this? And I'm trained to do this as a social worker. I'm constantly becoming aware of my own bias and trying to overcome my own bias. We all bring bias to our sure. work. And so I'm like, I need, I need to figure this out. And so I, I searched for a case of a person of color, a victim that, that was sort of a good fit. And this case presented itself. I'm like, okay, Frida, here we go. 
And yeah. so, uh, and Frida is definitely somebody we want justice for. Yes, a single mother of two small children. She was living in Muskegon, Michigan, and she was found brutally stabbed to death on the front sidewalk of her home mm-hmm. with her child sleeping in the house. Her three-year-old. Thank God, the other one was visiting grandma. Yes. I just, I mean, that was electrifying to me. The thought how close that child came to that horrible circumstance. And I actually think explains why she was found on the on the front sidewalk was I think she was trying to protect her three-year-old mm. mm-hmm. from whatever had happened, whatever conflict she had had that morning. It was very early in the morning when, when she was found. It was like 5.30 in the morning. And one of the children said they heard arguing. Yes. So yeah. it had come pretty close. Yes. And so my, my understanding everything I know about Frida um, is that she loved her children dearly. She would have done anything to protect them. Everyone I've talked to says she was an amazing mother. And so I'm not surprised that she would have done everything to protect her son mm-hmm. um, at that time. heartbreaking. Um, you apparently turned up the fact that there were some dangerous individuals circling her that yes. were, were they unknown to the police at the time of the murder? I think they were known. I think it's similar to the Newton case is that, you know, you look at these old cases and you think, oh, they're 30 years ago. What are we, what new information could we have? What I try to do when I build out the victimology, which I did the same thing to, with Frida's life as I did with, with Mary's life, right. is birth to death. Everything about her, all the conflicts, all the warts, the, the strengths, the weaknesses, everything. Right. And what, what I'm able to do is track what happened to everyone since her death. You know, it's sort of taking advantage of the passage of time, mm-hmm. yes. which is what we did with the Newton case. Might yeah. as well, yeah. right? Yes, absolutely. And so I similar crimes. So that I led you. complete detailed genealogies on all those people. I mean, it's months and months of work, right? Of sort of, well, what happened to them? What was their life like? Um, where, how can I track violence across generations? Um, because violence is almost like a, an illness that can also pass. There's a genetic predisposition. There's environmental factors. Violence, the same thing happens. That propensity to commit violence is very rare, particularly extreme violence. Mm-hmm. And so of those people around Frida's life, did any of them display that propensity for murder? Right. Beyond just, you know, right. a drug charge or, yeah. you know, right. uh, any any kind of smaller kind of kind of case, because the reality in this case is almost all the people around Frida at that time had a criminal history. And that's OK. I mean, that was just in 1991, the community that they were that Frida was living in. I was heavily policed. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a largely African-American community in mm-hmm. Muskegon, Michigan. And so there were a lot of issues going on in Muskegon mm-hmm. during that Questionable time. Questionable police tactics, to exactly. Say the least. Yeah. And it was at the height of sort of the crack epidemic, mm. um, and so that was played a big role in in what was happening uh, in that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so lots of people had criminal records, but that alone doesn't make you a suspect. No, not right? for a violent crime. Like I, this. We talk about this a lot in historical investigations of crime, particularly around queer suspects, mm-hmm. where people saw the engagement in one behavior as an indication of criminality in another. It, there was a time where people thought if you were gay, you were automatically a child molester, right. and then you may murder the children you molest. I mean, the, these, these slippery, fluid, biased mm-hmm. assumptions um, they don't hold up to scrutiny over time. That's you know? right. And I think these, this happens with law enforcement all the time. Right. I mean, it's where they can find somebody that maybe they had had a conflict with in policing them and they can t- quickly take a leap, mm-hmm. too far of a leap. Right. I try really hard not to do that. I work with theories, right? I, I, 
I deal with rumors and innuendo, but I never weigh in too heavily on any one of them. I investigate them. I right. look for evidence. It's it, I need evidence. And mm-hmm. I also am trying to verify all my evidence. So even if I find something, I get excited. But there's always a little doubt on my mind. Well, is that really real? Or I need I need to verify it. And that's, there's a lot of that in this case. I needed to know Frida. And, right. You know, like Mary, Frida, I feel like, is one of my kids now. Yeah. Uh, I've grown to just love her and who she was and the contribution she'd made to her family. But what was really important for me in this case, because I was dealing with a, the victim was a person of color, was to understand her within her community. Mm-hmm. And she was very active in the church mm. and with a sort of a, a fundamentalist and evangelical church called Church of God in Christ. Which was across the street. Across the street. Holy Trinity was across the street. Her family was heavily involved, as was, was, um, was Frida. But I had to admit, I didn't really know much about the African-American church. So I started there. I watched, I spent hours on YouTube watching sermons, uh, watching homegoing celebrations. Mm -hmm. I needed to understand the (laughs) language of this church because it was such a critical part of Frida's life. Mm -hmm. Um, That to know Frida meant I needed to know the church of God in Christ Mm -hmm. Um, and the conflicts with that um, because— uh, Frida, understanding Frida, the fact that Frida had two children, had never married. And this um, she was actually was third, pregnant. Yes. Yeah, pregnant at the time of her homicide, only six weeks pregnant. Um, and when I was able to meet with some of Frida's uh, family and friends, you know, they were able to address that with me about the conflict that Frida was having with her church, feeling mm-hmm. judged. Um, but also, how did Frida engage with her community and what was happening in 1991 in Muskegon, Michigan. I've tracked the entire history of Muskegon, like how they went from a manufacturing center to really sort of a desperate place where there was just tremendous poverty, substance use, uh, lots of crime, heavy policing. um, And how did Frida engage in that community? I needed to get a sense of that profile of Frida in relationship to her community. Right. Um, and I just developed even more empathy for Frida. What mm. I saw was this amazing woman uh, that her family saw was she was trying to extricate herself from that, trying to provide for her children, um, but also why she was struggling at the same time. Um, she was struggling. Uh, she only had some little child support. She made a little bit of money from Do babysitting. Do we know anything about the fathers of the children, father so, of the children? Yeah, so the, I... the same father of the two children, he was ruled out very early, has a, an alibi, no involvement. I, he has no criminal history, so I don't think he was involved. But Mary, uh, but um, uh, Frida was engaging with her neighbors. And uh, as I, I even went so far as to find all the property records for all the people who lived around Frida's house oh. and who was living there at the time. And uh, this is why Lamberti called you a savant. <laughs> I guess. Your ability so. to keep all that information in your head. Yeah. I mean, you must have a great filing system. Yeah, I mean, I I, I keep notes. Yeah, um, but you know, when, a lot of people keep notes. When you, Clark, when I, <laughs> I keep notes, and I couldn't remember to bring my keys today. <laughs> when I find that atta- when I get that attachment to the victim, yeah, I I start to see their community through their eyes. I I think I even I may have sent you. There's someone that filmed a YouTube video of Frida's uh, house and in the neighborhood, and I just I scour for any information. I love that. Um, anything I can find that gives. I'm also very visual, so I need to go and visit. Yeah. I call you them my home visits. Sure. I try to walk the same streets that yeah. the victim walked, the same areas. Like I, what are the institutions that influence the victim's life? 
Yeah. And out of that, you know, I find new information. And uh, what I think was challenging about this case is that um, there doesn't seem to be as much energy from the local law enforcement community with this case. Mm. And the family has done an amazing job at keeping a high profile, Mm -hmm. which is why they reached out to the Michigan State Cold Case Unit um, saying, hey, you know, do you have anyone that could help us? They thought of me. And so it was a was a good fit. Um, It's also challenging because uh, what I've learned about, particularly with victims who are African-American, it's harder to track their lives. Um, They don't tend to make the newspaper unless they Mm -hmm. are accused of a crime. Their celebrations are not promoted. Uh, mm-hmm. In the in newspapers.com, you don't find that. Um, even in the genealogy uh, resources, um, huh. you know, I use those religiously. I go back through old census records. In so many of the census records, even the neighborhoods where African Americans lived, African American families lived, no one has uploaded that information. Mm. So it is more challenging. There was also a time, I think, a, a while ago, where the deaths were not reported in the paper. That's right. That's yeah, not I remember reported. Encountering that in research for a novel I was working on. That's that after, so true. Before a certain year in New Orleans, which is where I was setting, mm-hmm. that there were no. Yeah. Yeah. So oh it makes God. it really hard to do this investigatory yeah. work, but. Yes. I did not let that get to me. I'm like, okay, this is why this is why I'm doing it. It's it's sort of you know, as a social worker, every client I ever had helped me with my next client, and it's like that with my victims. Billy has helped me with Mary's case. Right. And Mary's helped me with Frida's case, and so they all. It's sort of this cumulative effect. I'm getting better at my work, um, and so Frida has really done me a tremendous service. And so. Where are we with Frida? What have you been able to find? Well, basically what I've provided to the family is um, sort of a fuller picture of Frida's life and about some of the people around her, um, several of whom actually are in prison for committing homicide. And these are people that lived in the neighborhood where she was having regular contact, regular engagement. Um, Some of those are people that are known to law enforcement and some are not. And so that's all information that I I provide to them. Again, I just try to help uh, build new leads in Frida's case. Right, absolutely. And also to elevate the profile of the case. Uh, I think that's one of the greatest challenges in Mm -hmm. cold case investigation. Oh, yeah. It's just to get people to do it. Oh, my God, yes. We totally understand that. We totally understand that. Particularly in these cases. Listen, if if the— Porn trade publications had not reported on it over the years. I might never have known about Billy's murder. Right. It, and I and and they were trade publications. They were mm-hmm. business publications about the industry. If Mickey Ski, if J.C. Adams, if these people who mm-hmm. who would write about the comings and going, the deaths of stars, had not had regular uh, searchable articles on the case, I wouldn't have found out about and it. And I knew about it from neighborhood gossip. Right. Not from the news yeah. at all. Like yeah. I was just here. So I think that is, that is absolutely key. So so um, that's that's kind of where you've left it with that's, the yeah, cold and case I am, unit. I'm continuing to work on that case. I'm going yeah. back to Michigan in April. I'm going to sit down with all of Frida's family. Mm. And they're wonderful and have opened their lives to me. You know, so much of the work I do is grief work. Mm. Um, because I'm asking these families. And you're, again, uniquely qualified to yeah, be Yeah, I mean, I find myself doing grief work all the time when I'm working on these cases. Because yeah. I'm asking the family to sort of go back in time. Right, I, we're we're involved. I'm doing time travel with them, sure. yeah. and to and one of the most upsetting moments in their lives. Very much so. Like their lives, and so many times these families' lives are frozen in mm-hmm. time; they can't move on. And so I I find that an important part of my work 
is to help because the, the chances of these cases actually being solved are very rare. They're, they're just but without forensic evidence. It's virtually we impossible. understand. We that was where we we really consoled ourselves by right. saying probably the best we can do is keep Billy's memory alive. Mm-hmm. And what I try to do with the family is to bring peace, even if we don't find out who actually took the life of their loved one. Sure. At least they feel like that someone uh, took a look at the case. Because oftentimes they come frustrated with law enforcement. And again, I oftentimes defend law enforcement activities. I think even in Frida's case, they did a very thorough job investigating the case, but it got cold. Mm-hmm. And went as far as it could go. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, there were two narratives that we encountered on Billy's case, right? You have the father getting frustrated in around 2011 and mm-hmm. saying, even though they opened it back up again, they didn't do enough. And then you have Wendy Barrett, who was the, the head of the department, mm-hmm. the, saying this was her white whale. This was yeah. what got away. So I knew that there was a somewhere between those two narratives, there was a path for somebody, right? You know, to try to do more work. I, and I and I and then talking to people like Mark Rabins, who said every time I was interviewed, the cops had files going up to the ceiling. They were not ignoring this case. Yes. Um, so I, 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 it is very frustrating. But I think somebody who comes along with the fortitude and the patience and the vision, as Eric has pointed mm-hmm. out, that victimology vision. Um, because the vast majority of murders are going to encounter a law enforcement agency that needs to solve it in 48 hours. And right. if they don't, they feel it can't be solved. Yeah. That's just the truth of it. Or there's five more that they also need yeah, to that. start working or on. Or what I find is the distraction oftentimes is you can't find the answer. You feel, you make one up. Right. Not intentionally. But, you know, in Mary Alice Hedgelin Ellicott's case, um, Henry Lee Lucas very quickly became a very potential person of interest, right? The serial right. killer. And I'm glad you brought him up because we have never, of all the serial killers, we have yet to do Henry Lee Lucas. And he went from being believed to be the most prolific serial killer <laughs> in the United States to the most compulsive liar. Biggest liar. And there's a Netflix documentary, which I've watched, but we haven't done oh, on True so Crime good. TV Club, that's amazing because you just, if you were a cop with a cold case, you brought it to Henry Lee Lucas and, and he, he confessed he to it. Confessed to it. And you got a closed case. And that happened in this case. Yeah. Because... Um, you know, he's originally from Michigan. The one case we know the homicide he actually committed was committed only 15 miles away from yeah. where Mary Hedgelin Ellicott's body wow. was found. Wow. And so it became very convenient. Sure. Um, in the in the 1980s, whenever there was an unsolved case, he was either a serial killer or was a devil worshiper. And you see that in yeah. the records. Oh, like people okay. thinking, we... oh, we can't solve it. It must be a devil worshiper. Oh, my God. God. The satanic. If you want to get us worked up about something, <laughs> I just bring don't up get the me satanic started. pan. I was, a, we'll do that show a different time. I was a, oh I God. mean, I just, everybody <gasps> fell for that shit. Yes, and I remember being a child and my mother just being enraged watching these interviews on TV and saying, these kids are not telling the truth. They've been coached. Yeah. Nobody was swinging a skeleton around over their head I on know. a chain. That's what one kid on the Oprah Winfrey show was actually saying. Yeah. That they t- it was just insane. And law enforcement, if absent any other evidence, would simply try yeah. to satisfy the community sure. by saying, well, maybe, maybe, maybe that's They're what it still was. doing it, or they were still doing it in the Damien Eccles case, the case of the yeah. Robin Hood Hill murders, in which Memphis. we did cover. The, the, they still, in the present-day interviews, interview the Satanist expert, yeah. and I'm just like, Christ almighty. I know. They have that crazy yeah. show on CBS, I don't know if it's still evil, evil. Yeah. where they actually bring in somebody... In the courtroom to to dispute <laughs> possession and and it's like 
You don't have to dispute that in court. Right, That's right. not a defense. No. No. The devil made me do it is a routine from Flip Wilson. It is <laughs> yes. not a defense in court. And, and far too Honestly. many far too many amateur sleuths sort of fall down that trap right. as well. And so I'm very careful not to do that. Yeah, well, I think that's great. We Mary appreciate it. and that. Frida are lucky to have you oh, on this yes. side. I love them to death. When you well, I guess that's the wrong way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast. We do that shit all the time. We when say stuff we regret. you more to tell us about yeah. them, I hope you'll come back. because we will, I'd be happy to. We, would, we want to know more about But them. you'll be back next you week keep. to talk to us about a murder that's closer to home here in West Hollywood, which is the murder of 18-year-old Tracy Newt, who was a teenage mm-hmm. runaway whose remains were found scattered along Interstate 5 from Los Angeles to Fresno. We're going to talk about that case. It's a good one. When you are back with us next week. Thanks again for joining us here in the studio. Thank you, Clark. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? That man. I am telling you. Wow. I just, it is the most revolutionary. I really do think that in Mm -hmm. 20 years and we can once again, you know, hitch our wagon like solving Billy's murder as if we had anything to do with it (laughs) other than talking about it on on the show. Um, But yeah, I I really do think they're going to talk about the Clark Williams uh, method of of solving crimes. They'll be teaching it to people because I've never heard anybody else ever talk about solving, getting a view of the crime from the perspective of the victims. Yeah. They're always profiling the, the, the perpetrators. Yeah. And, or they're always, and, and in order to do that, I th- and I believe I said this earlier, they have to reduce the victim to the most sort of stereotypical surface level. She was a this. She was a that. You know, so the killer was a this. You know, so, and it's, yeah, we're it's looking so... This. And I think there's value in, right. all, in, doing, in looking at that aspect of it as well. But, wow, this is amazing. And because of the amazing result we got... Mm-hmm. Yeah, just looking at acquaintances and relationships, and because ultimately that's what led him to uh, Denny Lynn. Mm-hmm. Was Daryl Lynn? Daryl yeah. Lynn yeah. Uh, was through the the investigate through the um, the acquaintances through who Danny knew when he was here before he was Danny Lynn. Daryl Lynn. Mm-hmm. Um, in the uh, in in the lead up to, uh, to yeah, Billy's murder, it's amazing, just just phenomenal. So he's going to be back next week, Clark. And it was fascinating to talk about Mary Alice and Frida and their cases and his insights into those murders. But it 
Next week, it'll be a lot closer to home. A lot closer to home. Uh, the murder of a male sex worker who was probably gay, I believe, here in West Hollywood. But a lot of a lot of strange circumstances around the body and the remains, like with Billy Newton's case. And a case. whole new theory on the case from, yeah. from Clark, which I'm really interested to hear more about. I want to fast forward to next week already, and Clark's here. Okay. <laughs> we love Clark. We can't get enough Clark. We hope you can't get enough Clark either. Uh, so more Clark on uh, Citizen Detective Month here in tribute to Clark, the ultimate citizen detective in our experience. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Jacques And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.